You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'm so excited to be preaching today. I've had a couple Sundays off of preaching, and so I've got a little bit of pent-up preaching energy. But also, uh, also, I'm preaching on one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It's certainly my favorite passage from 1 Timothy. We're talking about young people today. All right. That's pretty weak. Okay. No, it's, it's fitting that we're talking about young people today. Uh, a couple of different things happened this week. I didn't plan them, but just happened to coincide. We had our high school and junior high summer camp called Base Camp. Yeah, you can celebrate that. Uh, I've already heard. They got back at like 5 p.m. yesterday. So just give a hug to a youth leader today. Uh, praise the Lord for them. And uh, I already heard that it was just a great time. About 60 students there enjoying uh, uh, connecting with one another, enjoying God's presence, uh, connecting with God through nature, through even some of the more contemplative practices like prayer and silence. And uh, yeah, it just uh, one of the co- things I wanted to highlight about Base Camp to celebrate is this was actually the first camp where we as Hill City Church had a student leader leading younger students. So there was a student who got baptized a year and a half ago at winter camp. He just graduated high school about a month ago, and he went to camp, and now he's discipling junior high students. Can we celebrate that? That's what it's about, okay? That's what it's about. That's what I'm talking about. I had a little bit of a different camp experience. I was in Tennessee uh, Thursday night, and I was speaking not in this outdoor pine forest. I was in a room with over 1,400 high schoolers uh, from around the country, and it was just this, you know, it was kind of loud and lights and, you know, like fog machines and lasers. No, I don't think there was lasers, but uh, really powerful. And I took another picture from that event, and this is students. There was a, a response that there was these uh, stations with, with chains around the room and like really heavy chains. And I don't even know where you purchase chains like that, by the way. And, uh, and students were able to like go to those stations if there was sin in their life that God was freeing them from or forgiving them from or they wanted to commit to uh, following Jesus for the first time and they would go to these stations, they would, uh, people would pray for them and they would drop them. And you heard like even as loud as the music was, you would hear chains drop, chains falling all around the room. Very, very powerful. But one of the reasons I want to show you this picture is this was not just a student that God was speaking to and moving to and their youth pastor was praying for them. Who's praying for this student? Their brothers and sisters in Christ, their peers. That's what I'm talking about today, okay? So much of the time we think, how do, you know, how do we minister? How do, how do we help the next generation? The reality is, is God uses young people to minister to young people. Amen? And we've got to actually, in some ways... Step out of the way and let the next generation lead. Let them follow Jesus. Let them use their gifts for God's kingdom. Can you tell that I care about this? I believe in this so, so much. Uh, Tyler Huckabee in a relevant magazine article has this quote that I love. He says, the real secret for the church will be learning. We've got to learn, okay? 
Got to learn a thing or two, church. Learning that their mission is not simply to shape Gen Z, but also to be shaped by them. Which means we've got to let the next generation lead. And I'm just here to tell you, it can be scary letting a young person lead, can't it? It can be scary. It's risky. But as we'll see today, God has always done this. He's always consistently, cover to cover in Scripture, used young people. Immature, unqualified, uneducated young people. David, Daniel, Samuel, Jeremiah, Mary, Esther, Ruth, the 12 apostles. I don't know what you picture when you picture these apostles, but they don't even own their own fishing business. They're in the boat with their, with their dad. Jesus was around 30 years old, and he's calling disciples who are likely 5, 10, maybe even younger, years younger than him. These are teenagers and young adults, ladies and gentlemen, and Jesus trusted them to go knock on a door and cast out demons. He trusted them. He trusted them with the gospel. He trusted them to go and share the good news. And it's, t- it's about time, it's high time, I would say, that the church starts trusting the next generation as well. Amen? We're going to need some more amens today. This is a big deal to me. I became a lead pastor at the age of 26 years old. I don't know how old you think I am now, but I'm a little older than 26. And uh, I was consistently asked the same question. How old are you again? Sometimes it would be followed by a guess. How old are you? 12? (laughs) Usually people wouldn't say that uh, after I preached. They would say that before I got up to, to preach a sermon, they would meet me. But the reality is we have culturally this, what I call a maybe when you're older mindset. Oh, you want to be used by God? That's great. Maybe when you're older. Maybe after you graduate high school. Maybe after you graduate college. Maybe after three to five years experience. You know, that, you know the catch 22 of that? You need three to five years experience to get a job. Well, how do you get a job that requires experience if you must have experience to get a job? You see that? We've kind of created this maybe even subconsciously in the church where we do child care, we don't disciple the next generation. And we kind, of, we kind of create these compartments of the church where the kids can go and be rowdy and be crazy over there. But this is where the grown-ups go to really, you know, this is where the real ministry happens. And I've just got to tell you that the ministry that we hear about underneath our feet when the speakers are playing and the kid, the elementary kids are doing worship, that's just as much ministry, and I would say just as important as what we're doing up here. Amen? It's so, this is so vital for us to get right. And this is why I will clear my schedule and travel across the country if I get an opportunity to help light a fire in the next generation for Jesus, a generation that we are losing in the church, that is bleeding out of the church today. And if I can play even a small role in that, in inspiring a new generation of kingdom leaders, I will take any opportunity that God gives me. I actually wrote a book about this. I'm trying to get a book published about this because this is a message I believe in so passionately. And so even though I didn't have as much time to write this sermon, I've got the passion today for this passage. Let's jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Command these things. There's that music. Do you hear it? 
There it is. That's ministry. It's happening. I'm not going to tell them to turn it down. I'm not going to tell them to turn it down. Command these things, or command and teach these things. Let no one, everyone say nobody. Maybe we should put the word nobody there. Let nobody despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Remember who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to... It's on, the, it's on the page. He's writing to Timothy, and Timothy, Paul describes as young. Now, this word young can be described for a variety of age, really kind of anywhere from 20 to 40. Likely, Timothy is young, but he's probably like my age. I'm 32, by the way, if you're trying to, if you're wondering. I'm 32 years old. Timothy's probably about my age. And the issue that he's dealing with is externally, he has a job to do and he's facing resistance. So he's got external resistance from people who are older than him. He's got these false teachers. It's a difficult job, by the way, almost like the job of a church consultant. Go into a toxic leadership environment where there's literal elders who are spreading heresy, a false doctrine, and and Paul wants Timothy to be the guy to remove them from office and replace them with someone who's actually going to preach the true gospel. That's not like an easy job. I would never sign up for a job like that. It's very, very difficult. And he's dealing with people who are elders, one of the things, I mean, it goes without saying in some ways, but an elder is someone who is older, a little bit older, right? Likely. It doesn't you know, have to be old to be an elder. I'm actually an elder at our church. But Timothy is very likely dealing with people who are 10, 20 years his senior. And so he's got this external resistance where he's got to sit someone down and say, listen, that sermon you gave last week, I don't know how to break it to you. It's full of heresy. And that that guy's going to look at Timothy and say, you can't even grow a proper beard. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff. Do you see that? That's the kind, like, I, like, that's the kind of, like, how old are you, 12? That's what Timothy is facing externally. He's facing external resistance. How dare you, whippersnapper, come in here. I've been, you know how long I've attended this church. Right? That's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with external resistance. Not only does, de- does Timothy have that to deal with, but we know that Timothy actually, like personality-wise, has some internal insecurities. He's a bit more timid than some of the other characters we read about in Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul would actually say, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Just to clarify that. Why, why does he write that to Timothy? Because Timothy is actually kind of embodying a spirit of fear. He's afraid about the difficult job that he's been handed. And so he's got this external resistance. He's got this internal insecurity. And so that's why Paul is saying, listen, I know it's a hard job. I'm sorry I'm not there for you. This might be his first solo rodeo, by the way. We don't know. But like he traveled with Paul. He's learned from this great apostle. He's helped plant churches. He's baptized people. He's cut his teeth. He might only be 32 years old. He might only be, you know, late 20s maybe. But he's cut it. He's done. He's seen some things, right? Beyond his years, maybe. He's seen some things. But he's not being treated like that. He's not being empowered, equipped by the church. He doesn't get the respect from traveling with this great apostle. And so Paul says, listen, don't let don't let nobody, some people might say, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. We're not a church that looks down on the next generation. 
And the reality is, for you, maybe, even if you're not, you know, Gen Z, even if you're not one of the, the, the upcoming emerging generations, the reality is, maybe there's external resistance or internal insecurities that you've faced as well. A reason, an excuse why you can't be used by God for anything significant. And I just, I just want to encourage you with this same point. What does Paul say that Timothy should do? Timothy, he's, don't let people look down on you, but here's what you should do. He says, set an example. Here's the point. Live a life that people look up to. When a lady on my first Christmas Eve as a lead pastor says, what are you, 12, before service, I don't get in an argument with that lady, okay? Do you, do you recognize? That's not productive, right? I don't, talk, I don't patronize her in return. I don't dish it back. I don't have a quick... I have quick comebacks, by the way. <laughs> I could. <laughs> And uh, I need to repent to the, even like internal, like, Lord, I'm sorry I even thought that, right? And uh, the best thing to do in that situation is like, well, I hope that God speaks to you through our service today. And she wasn't asking if I was 12 after the Christmas Eve service because she saw God move in power through someone that she didn't expect, someone who was unlikely. By the way, that God, God's always using unlikely candidates for his purposes. And so what's the point? Don't get in an argument if someone's looking down on you or despising you or even your own insecurities, you're buying into the lies. What should you do? Live a life that people look up to. Set an example. There's five areas. If you like taking notes, one to five right now on your notes. Note takers are world changers. I've got a youth pastor friend. He coined that phrase. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to steal it. There's no copyright on that line. One to five. The first thing to set an example in is in speech. Somebody say speech. You've got to speak the truth with grace and love. We've got to use our words. Your words have power. Power to build up, power to tear down, power to destroy. James, the brother of Jesus, says, who can tame the tongue? How often do we say things we wish we could take back? And yet our speech is so incredibly important. If you can, if you can tame the tongue, you can actually have mastery over other areas of your life as well. This is what we say, the words that come out of your mouth. This is what you say when you stub your toe. This is what you say on social media. It's important. What you say matters. It's a witness. It's a testimony to the outside world. Ephesians 4.29, Paul would write, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. There's that saying, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's Disney. I'm, okay, here's something better. If you don't have something nice to say, think of something nice. <laughs> right? You don't, it's not enough, I would say, to just not be destructive with your words. That's a start, but that's not enough. Being, being silent is better than being mean, by the way. So don't let that be like permission to just say mean things. But if you don't have something nice to say, we actually need to be proactive with our speech. You want to know the best thing that you can use your mouth for? Speaking the gospel. We're actually commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Share your testimony. Tell someone about Jesus. Tell someone how God is working in your life. Use your, use your words for that. But then just use your words to edify, to build up. Not to destroy, but to build up. To give grace to someone. To encourage someone. What if we, as older generation... Now, I'm a millennial. Millennials aren't the young people anymore, by the way. So if you're still like... Millennials, like, hey, those are like 43-year-olds, okay? So it's like... We, as older generations, what if we used our words to speak words of truth and prophecy and calling and identity and affirmation over the upcoming generations? Do you think that God would use that to shape the future of the church? 
This is how you get to revival. We've got to speak those words passionately. If you have kids in your house, over your children or over any young person that you meet. We're going to set an example in speech. The second one is conduct. Somebody say conduct. Conduct is your life. It's your walk. You know, we don't just want to talk the talk. We want to walk the walk. This is what we say at Hill City Church. We want to follow Jesus with everything. That means every area of your life. Every day of your life, everything that you have, we want to follow Jesus with everything. Because here's what happens oftentimes. Even if we get the speech part right, and we're saying the right things, but our lives don't line up with what we're saying, there's a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. And by the way, it's one of the main reasons why young people are bleeding out of the church. A 2019 study found that 64% of young adults, 18 to 29 years old, would walk away from the church in their young adult years. 64%. Now what do we do to combat that? Well, you could just try to reach 64% more young people. Or what if... What if, this is a crazy idea, we just tried to disciple the next generation to reduce that percentage of young adults who are in our households, who are in the basement right now. What if we just, not just talk the talk, what if they actually saw their parents following Jesus with everything? And I know it's hard, right? That there's always, there's always going to be some level of hypocrisy. And I know that is a reason. I can't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. And here's the, here's the, here's the one-liner. We've always got room for one more. <laughs> you just own it. You just own it. Don't fight. No, we're not. We're super righteous. It's like, well, let's be honest. We're works in progress. We're sinners saved by grace. And we're trying our best. And we apologize. And we own it in humility, even apologizing to our own children for ways that we weren't like Christ in our parenting, ways that we weren't like Christ in our marriage. You see that? That's what we do. Walking the walk doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you're walking with Jesus along this journey of discipleship. And you, you get a generation of children who see their parents, who see their leaders being authentic on this journey of discipleship. Not perfect, but authentic on this journey of discipleship. That is a kind of godly role model that, the next gener- that draws the next generation into Christ-likeness and says, you know what? I'm not perfect either, but, I, but I'm going to model what it's like to repent, to confess, to apologize, to, to accept and own it. That's what we're going to do. Jesus said this, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. According to Jesus, it's not enough just to say the right words. Lord, Lord. That's the right words. Call Jesus Lord. We should certainly do that, but we've actually got to live it. We've got to live it. The third thing is love. Somebody say love. Love, biblically speaking, is caring for others. We have this kind of cultural definition of love that's very self-centered and self-focused. This is different than the agape love that we read about in Scripture, which is, which is others-focused, self-sacrificial self-giving. It's caring for others without caring if they repay you. You don't care if they even say thank you. You don't care if they hit you back up. 
You don't care if they cash app you when you give them a ride or buy them a meal. And Jesus said, this is truly how you identify whether someone's a genuine follower or not. In John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And I hear it sometimes. We don't have to like each other, but we have to love each other. And I'm like, kind of. But I mean, imagine, would you really want to be a part of a church community? Like, I hate everyone in my church but I love them anyways. (laughs) There's some element of an internal commitment. Again, I'm not not saying that you have to like naturally get along with what, like not every personality type meshes. We know that, right, as humans? Not everyone like has the same preferences as you. And I know it's hard. Any family is hard to be a part of. There's always conflict. There's always issues. But what love means is we're actually committed to the relationship over our own preferences. We're committed to working on the relationship. We're committed for the long haul. We're not, we're not mirroring this cancel culture that we see in the world. Unfollow, unfriend, unsubscribe. Too easy. We've made it too easy to become someone's friend online, and I would say too easy to unfriend someone. And we bring that into our lives. So easy to cut someone out of our lives. We don't treat each other like that in the church. We work at it. And it's hard, and it's messy, but this is how the world knows that we're actually followers of Jesus. We have a supernatural. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. We have a kind of love that is unseen in the world, but it's recognizable to people as coming from heaven. It's recognizable. We've got to set an example in love, church. The fourth thing is faith. Somebody say faith. Faith means trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. You could translate this Greek word also as belief, but I think the the word faith is better because when we think believe, we think of it's just a belief. Like it's just like a list of theological facts. You check the box. I do believe Jesus is the Son of God. I do believe he died on the cross and rose. That's a start as well. It's, It's one element or one aspect of faith, but faith is actually belief plus trust. We're not just believing information or believing even the news about Jesus, the good news of the gospel, we're trusting the person of Jesus with our lives because he is trustworthy. In Romans 5.1, Paul would write to the church, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to speak to you for a moment. If you don't have faith in Jesus yet, you're in the perfect place on a Sunday morning, although I'm sure it doesn't feel like that by the temperature in the room. You're like, Am I, did I show up to the right place? And I'm just here to tell you that Jesus loves you. He's the son of God. He lived the, the perfect life that none of us could attain. He died in your place for your sins on the cross. And he rose from the grave three days later. That's the gospel. And because God is full of grace and mercy and love for you, it's his kindness that draws us to repentance. And he loves you and he longs for you to be in a relationship with him. Today can be the day that you respond to the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus. But you have to recognize from the very beginning, it's not the fine print of the contract, from the very beginning, faith does not only mean agreeing with what I said. I hope you do. I hope you believe it. But I also hope you trust Jesus. Because that's what it means to be a believer. It's not just the things that you believe, it's the person of Jesus that you trust as your Lord and Savior. And church, we've gotta be an example to the world in faith. We gotta know the book, we gotta know know the stuff, but we've actually gotta live every day walking by the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that we trust Jesus as 
our Lord, which means we, he's, our, he's the boss. He's the boss. I'm not on my own. I've been bought with a price. Number five, purity. Everyone say purity. purity. Our favorite word, right? Purity. It means living the right way. Here's the best example or illustration for purity. You go down to a really muddy lake and you scoop up in a clear water bottle, you scoop up a big old, big old 32 ounces of whatever is sw- swimming around, the little bugs and the minnows, and the, the, you scoop it up, who's drinking that realistically? Nobody's drinking that because the water is Im- it's impure. It has a bunch of impurities in it. It has a bunch of stuff that will make you sick. That's what sin is in our lives. And so let's say someone comes up to you and they're like, wow, you've got a terrible water bottle full of water. I have a purifier. Would you like to use it? Who would, like, are we like, why are you threatening me? How dare, how dare you call this? But no, what, are they, what are they're actually doing is very loving. I actually want to help take the stuff that's making you, that would make you sick, that could kill you out of your life. That's what sanctification is. This is why conviction from the Holy Spirit is a very good thing. It's actually one of the most loving things about the gospel, is that God wants to take the impurities, the sin that is making us sick, that's hurting us, and he wants to continually transform us by the renewing of our minds. That's what purity means, okay? This is not toxic purity culture. This is like biblical purity is a beautiful picture of God's love for you. He's not giving up on you. He will continue this work on you until the day of redemption. He will continue. He's not giving up, and he wants you to find freedom. But here's the thing about sin. What those impurities do in our lives, it doesn't just make us feel bad or make us you know, feel embarrassed when we still sin or we still struggle. Here's what sin does. It doesn't make God love you less, but it will make God use you less. Consistently, you see that in Scripture, is that if we want to be used by God, we, you want to be an example People who are an example, people who are leading, people who are discipling, they've got to get serious about purity. You want to see revival in the next generation? Revival never happens without repentance first. We've got to get serious about our sin. We've got to get serious about sanctification, serious about confession, serious about allowing God not only to grow the fruit of the Spirit, but what happens before the fruit of the Spirit can grow? He's got to put to death the works of the flesh. And crucifixion is not an instant death, is it? It's actually one of the slowest ways to die. And so when Paul writes to the church in Galatians 5, who, who, they're Christians, he's saying, you still, even now, still, five years in, 10 years in, I'd say 40 years in, you still crucify that flesh. Crucify, get serious about this. This is a promise from Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Maybe you've been wondering in your life, why am I not experiencing? Why am I not seeing? Why am I not feeling God as clearly as I once did? The very first thing I would ask you to consider is, is there unconfessed, unrepented, hidden sin in your life? Because I can guarantee that is clouding your vision of who God is. And hurting your relationship. It's not making you less saved. I'm not saying that, right? It's not making God love you less. But it's hindering the relationship. We know this in human relationships, don't we? If there's something between you and someone else, there's just, it's, it's not going to work right. Your experience with that. Okay, you get it, all right? No matter how old you are, you can set an example in these five areas, can't you? 
speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Live a life worth looking up to. Too many Christians getting attacked online, arguing, trying to, trying to win a debate, trying to win an argument. What if we just lived the right way? This is like a crazy idea. What if we just lived a life that, the, that actually drew the world to Jesus? Something like this vision that Jesus put forth, that the church would be a city set on a hill and that people would see your light as you shine before others and they would glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we want to be as a church. Oh, we got to keep going. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Something we've got to be devoted to is we've got to be devoted to God's Word. Devote yourself to God's Word, okay? Here's why this is very important. Paul's words to Timothy. People are doubting his authority. He's got a difficult job to do. Go fire that elder. He's got a difficult job to do, okay? People are like, well, who are you? You whippersnapper. What are you in? He, positionally, we actually don't know what his, like, title, his job title would be. Is he Pastor Timothy? Is he an elder himself? We don't know. Is he a church consultant, Timothy? Not sure. Does he even have a title? We don't know. He's a servant of Christ. Maybe that's the only title he needs. But he's got to go and do this, and people are doubting his authority. Here's something that you, that is, you can't doubt, the authority of the Word of God. He's like, so listen, they're not going to listen to you. Just, okay, let me just crack this open and start reading it to you. People are going to doubt you. You're going to be like, hey, we've got to like just exhort them with the word of God. It's profitable. It's inspired by the Lord. Profitable for teaching, rebuking, exhortation, and correction. Just be dedicated to the word of God. We've got to be a church that is dedicated, engaged with scripture. Because God's word has authority even when you don't. Even when you're unqualified, even when, when, when you don't have your own authority to stand on, you can stand on the authority of God's word. And so would we be a church that is in the word day in and day out? Not just once a week, not just, not just during a sermon. Would we read it together? We talk about it with our kids. When, they, when we get up, when we lie down along the way, in the car, do you know God's word? What happens Right? What happens when trials come your way? Does the God's word, does scripture come to mind? Memorize, meditate, chew on God's word. And you will notice a new wind, a fresh wind of authority in how God uses you. Right? Does that make sense? Here's another thing that Paul says to Timothy. He says, don't neglect the gift that you have. So we don't know exactly what happened. Likely this is some kind of ordination service or moment where the elders uh, of the church had laid hands on Timothy and maybe they, they prophesied over him. Maybe they identified a spiritual gifting in him and said, this is what we see in you. Maybe he received a spiritual gift in that moment that he didn't have before and it was just powerful. Maybe it's a spiritual gift that his mom and his grandma, had, they knew about it since the day he was born. They're like, this little guy, he's going to be a preacher one day or whatever, right? We don't know. But Paul says this very important line to Timothy, don't neglect it. If God has gifted you with anything, with finances, time, availability, relationships, resources, skills, ability, education, the list goes on and on and on. I believe, I view everything that we have in life as a gift from God. Every breath that you take is a gift from God. Every day that you're alive, a gift from God, right? Children are a gift from God. Whatever God has given you, here, here's, here's this 
principle, it's a, it's a cliche, but I just want to say it because I think it really helps us understand this principle. Use it or lose it. When it comes to spiritual giftings, I think we see Jesus teach on this principle in Matthew 25. Those who are faithful with a little will be given more, and those who neglect their spiritual giftings don't use their spiritual giftings. It's actually diminished in them. Remember the parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25. There's three different servants. Jesus is the master. The servants are meant to be us, those who serve him, right? And uh, three different servants are given three different abilities, you know, or three different amounts of money according to their ability. God knows you, by the way, better than you know yourself. So if God chooses to gift you with something, don't compare yourself to someone else. God doesn't compare what he creates. We got to stop comparing what he creates. And so don't let, like, this person has that gift and I don't. And so that's why you're not using your spiritual gifts or serving others or, you know, using your life for, for a higher purpose. But there's these three different guys. They're given different amounts of money. The first two guys, they do something. The master goes away, he comes back, and he settles an account. What did you do? And this is what he says. He says in Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set, we, set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The reward for faithfulness is not a gift. It's not a, it's not a like, here's your paycheck. Does that make sense? A lot of us are like, I wonder what my, like, how many gems are on my crown in heaven, or I wonder how many rooms my mansion will get, or whatever. So much of the time, because we live in a very, like, carrot society, don't we? I did a job, where's my reward? Job, reward, job, reward. The gift that the master gives to those who are faithful is more responsibility. Yeah, yeah, one woo, okay. The reality is, though, this is how it works. And it is a gift, by the way, to get to the end of your life and look back and actually see a life that leaves a legacy for God's kingdom. I can't think of a better gift. Could you? We're not going to take any of, the, any of the money or the houses or the cars or the success or the influence that we have. But in heaven, into eternity, what if you got to meet someone that was directly or even indirectly impacted by a life lived as a good and faithful servant? That's an eternal gift. Do you want that? Do you want to have a family where you get to meet your great, 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 great grandkids in heaven one day? And it started with you drawing a line in the sand. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. You didn't grow up in a Christian household. Does that make sense? You've got to be faithful today. Monday morning, think about what time is your alarm, alarm going off? You're faithful the moment your feet hit the floor. Be faithful over a little with what God has given you as you walk by the Holy Spirit and look for leadings and look for opportunities to use whatever. Everyone say whatever. Whatever. Money, opportunity to give, use it for God's kingdom. Skills, abilities, start serving. Find a way to use it. Time, availability, you may not even be skilled, but you got time. Use it. What are you filling your calendar with anyways? Golf, it's so hot outside. I'm just kidding. If you golf, that's great. But look at what happens. That's a faithful leader. That's a beautiful vision. And we need to reframe this like, well, what did, you know, I did a job. Where's my reward? Like, we need to like be, like reframe it to humbled and honored that God gives you an opportunity to be used for a greater purpose and calling. Beautiful gift. Eternal gift. Look at the other guy. That was the first two. The other guy, the one talent guy. 
He buries his money. I would say he buries his gift. Some of you, God created every single person on purpose for a purpose. He's given you gifts to use. Some of you, it's buried. Maybe it was the external opposition. Somebody told me I wasn't good at it. You know how many people have told me that they didn't like a sermon? Oh my goodness. Seriously. You think that's going to stop me preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Ain't no way. Okay? External or internal insecurities. You You know how many times I drive home after Sunday and I'm like, oh, I forgot to say that thing that I said. You know, I wrote it down. I forgot. Feeling like, honestly, just feeling... Feeling like a failure, feeling like I didn't do a good enough job. You, the internal insecurity, actually, you, do you face this? It's not just me, right? We bury it. If you allow internal insecurity or external opposition or resistance to cause you out of fear, fear of man or fear of failure for yourself, to bury your spiritual gifts, I'm going to read it. It's not comfortable what the master responds to with this third servant. He doesn't call him faithful or good. He calls them wicked and lazy. Look at what it says, Matthew 25, 28. So take the talent from him and reallocate that kingdom resource. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who's actually going to use it. Take the talent from the one. It's just going to be covered in dirt, buried in the ground anyways. Let's use it or lose it. We don't talk about this in the church very much, but I believe this is how it works in the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom economics lesson. That God will reallocate. He will, he will diminish. There's a little spark of a spiritual gifting, and you're letting the external opposition or insert, like dampen that thing. God's going to fan into flame someone else's gifting to do the job that he had for you to do. Don't neglect it, church. Your kids need to see you using your spiritual gifts for the kingdom. If you want to see them use the spiritual gifts for the kingdom as well. We got to, all right, last two verses. 1 Timothy 4, 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Remember, false doctrine is a main concern of this letter. Keep, keep an eye on the false teaching. Keep, make sure you're, you're, you're preaching the truth. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We have another cliche saying, practice makes perfect. It's not actually true. That's a cliche I disagree with. Practice makes progress, is a better saying. And what does Paul say to Timothy? Practice these things so that all may see your progress. You get better. You'll get better. Timothy, I know you had a horrible meeting where you sat down with that false teacher and they chewed you up and they spit you out. Oh man, that was gnarly. Keep practicing. You'll get better. Conflict resolution, I know it's not your strong suit. You've seen me do it a million times. You're not me, by the way. You're not nearly as strong of a personality as the Apostle Paul. Keep practicing. Keep practicing. Practice makes Progress. This is the this, this same idea of, the, of last week's teaching on training yourself for godliness. You want to be a good servant of Christ? You've got to practice. You've got to train. You've got to show up to the spiritual gym. Here's the point. Following Jesus takes practice. Not only should we put our faith into practice, we should walk the walk, but we have to recognize, don't wait until you're perfect to start living out your faith. 
Live out your faith today, tomorrow. Put it into practice. And over time, it's not gonna be up and to the right always. You're gonna have setbacks. You're gonna, have, you're gonna fail sometimes. You're gonna, you're gonna be discouraged sometimes. But if you practice, everyone's gonna undeniably see your progress one day. Progress in the sense of your impact for God's kingdom and the Holy Spirit's anointing on your life will be just totally, no one can miss it. It's unmistakable. People are like, man, how did you get here? How were your kids so powerful, powerful in the Holy Spirit? How? How in the world did that happen? Practice, man. I don't know. I just keep showing up every day and practicing following Jesus. I read my Bible. My kids watch me read my Bible. I pray. We pray a lot, right? We go to church, not just like the 1.6 times a month, but we get here even when it's difficult. I know it's hard. I know it's hot, right? And we get here and we show up and we keep showing up every single day. And as we practice following Jesus, we're going to see progress. I want to show you a picture of uh, my two oldest kids. This was at the Harrison Classic. It's called a fun run. Some of you think that's an oxymoron. A fun run. <laughs> it's not. I love running, okay? And uh, so our kid, we were like, hey, you got, you kids, you want to do a race? And they were actually pumped. We don't force this. Don't like, we don't force our kids into this, Okay. But they were like, they see me putting on my shoes day in, day out. I get out the door with the dog, right? They see my wife getting out the door, going on runs. They're always like, can we go for a run? Can we go for a run? So they're asking. Sometimes we do little like jogs in the backyard and do all that sort of stuff. So we signed them up for this race. And I was like, my brother's a runner. My sister's a runner. I'm a runner. I've done marathons. I'm like, maybe I have a prodigy on my hands. Who knows? (laughs) And so uh, our middle child was with uh, my wife. And uh, the baby in a stroller. She ended up riding in the stroller instead of the baby. <laughs> yeah, so my wife's like holding a baby and like pushing our middle child. And then my, my oldest, she did great. Like she was on her, like I didn't carry her, but she was not a prodigy, okay? <laughs> like it was like run 20 seconds and like walk break. And I was like, yeah, it's about time for a walk break. And so we do a walk break and then we would run and we do a walk break and we made it to the end and she was so mad. She hated it. And then we went and got ice cream. And I, after we got ice cream, I was like, so what do you think of the race? She was like, I loved it. And I was like, praise the Lord. <laughs> Incentive, you know, motivation. It does work sometimes. Anyways, and so we did that. And, uh, and so that's where they're at in their running careers right now. I've ran a few marathons, and sometimes I, in training for marathons, you don't just like show up and run 26.2 miles. You have to practice, you gotta train, and some of the training runs are long, okay? And sometimes I go out for my long run, and my oldest daughter will be like, can I come? And it's hard to explain like, like literally you can't. Like you wouldn't be, like 18 miles, you can't do that. Seriously, like, think about that for a moment. We know this principle to be true. No matter how much a three-year-old and a five-year-old want to run a marathon, it's impossible if they haven't done the training. Do you understand that? It's impossible, by the way, for many adults if you haven't done the training to make it that distance. And yet, they might not run a marathon next week or next year or maybe even in the next 10 years. But one day... If they've got a passion for it, but it's not just if they have a passion for it, they have to practice. I want to show you another picture. This is my kids, same two kids, on the job site of our Impact Month service project. 
And it was a dangerous environment. We were at a, uh, at a, a church renovating an entire education wing. There's a preschool in town and they needed help. They basically had to move and they have three months to do a building renovation. I've done building renovations. It takes more than three months, okay? So like in a pinch, you're like, who can help? And we're like, well, my life group could help. And we, we went and we served. And it's not like a child-friendly service project like some are. My, my oldest daughter's job, you see that thing on a stick that's a magnet? Her job legitimately was find as many nails as you can. And she found many nails. No, she didn't step on any, uh, thank, thank the Lord for that. Because tetanus is a real, don't call uh, Child Protective Services on me, please. But we brought them. It would be way easier not to bring your one-year-old, your three-year-old, and your five-year-old to a service project. Agreed? Can we agree with that? Way easier. Leave them at home. Child, get a sitter. Let the adults go to Jesus practice and let the kids stay home and play. Do you see that? That is easier, but that is not God's vision for the church. If you want kids to serve God in their schools and make Jesus known in their schools, if you want kids to go on mission trips and work cross-culturally, if you want kids to be able to lead the church into the future, we've got to let them practice. Do you hear that? We've got to let them practice. And we do this, maybe not as overtly as you're too young, but we do this subconsciously in the church. Let the grown-ups follow Jesus, maybe when, you're, maybe when you're older. And we've got to let our kids start following Jesus now. It's risky. Tetanus is a very real risk. It's uncomfortable. It's harder. It's way harder. You get less done. There's, I, could, I could preach a sermon on why you shouldn't do this. That's not today's sermon. We know all the reasons why, why it's hard to do this. We've got to do this if you want to see the church flourish and thrive long past when we are on this planet. Agreed? And we've got to start following Jesus now too. The best thing that you can offer to the next generation is actually being a role model, putting your faith into practice. Here's the last point. Paul says that for by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's not saying that Timothy is anyone's savior, by the way. It's, it's, it's a weird way to phrase it, but here's the point that he's making. Salvation is on the line. This is why this is a big deal. Salvation is on the line. I don't know if you realize this. That Jesus is the only one who can save. He's the only savior. We're not, trying to, we're not trying to take his job and being someone else's savior. But one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel to me is why God invites you and I into someone else's salvation story. Just do it yourself, God. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be better? But God actually trusts. He takes a risk on you and me. He, believe, he believes in us and he invites us and he gifts us and he calls us according to his plan and his purposes. And the way that you live, the way that you set an example, the words that you speak and your conduct and your love and your faith and your purity, our lives can either draw people into the kingdom of heaven or they can be yet another reason why I don't want to go to church. Salvation is on the line. And so would you... Put your faith into practice 
and point people to Jesus. The future of the church depends on it. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.